You're listening to the second episode of the Alan Gray podcast. My name is Talia Patusi. I manage the Alan Gray Money Market Fund and a portion of the Balanced Fixed Interest Fund, and I am your host for today. We've put this podcast together for financial advisors and investors, and our aim with each episode is to share different perspectives on topical issues and give you a sense of how we look at the world, particularly when we are putting your portfolios together. Today, I'm going to be speaking to my colleague, Sandy McGregor. Sandy is a portfolio manager at Alan Gray, and his responsibilities include the management of the balanced fixed interest portfolios. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about global inflation, recessions, the energy crisis, the commodities boom, and other South African fables and foibles. Sandy, before we delve into our conversation, I wanted to ask you about your professional journey. You worked with Alan for many years, and in fact, you've been at Alan Gray for over 30 years. What drew you to economics and investing, and why Alan Gray? When I was young, my, my father was a businessman. In those days, there was, wasn't a financial industry like we now know. If you wanted to invest, you did it yourself. You had a stockbroker, you bought shares. So buying shares was always part of, you know, of my youth, part of the world I was living in. The family was doing that. Um, I went to university. I studied geology. I went to work for the mining industry. I also studied economics. And I became quite involved in commodities and, and, uh, and investment matters when I worked at Goldfields. I met Alan first in the 1980s, and we knew each other for almost a decade before I joined Alan Gray. He, he was a long courtship, let's say. And I, I joined Alan Gray because, in fact, the um, way I thought about investing was exactly the way Alan thought about it. And that was true, actually, of all my colleagues at, at, uh, at Alan Gray. We, we all thought the same way. We all had the same sort of idea of value investing. So there was a natural place for me to come to. Now, Sandy, the number one question, I would say, on investors' minds at the moment is inflation. And we saw U.S. consumer price inflation come out at plus 9.1% year-on-year. This was for June. And I've read it described as a red-hot print. And then underlying that, you know, food inflation was plus 10, energy a staggering plus 40. And then quite interestingly, services and rents up 55 to 6%. And I think an important question to ask is, Will the Fed be able to bring this 9% headline inflation or even the 6% so-called core inflation down? And the market certainly seems to think so. So the market is pricing 10-year forward inflation expectations at 2.3% and then 5-year forward inflation expectations at still a very low 2.6%. And then as such, the U.S. 10-year bond is trading at a very low, in my opinion, 3% yield. So what it seems like is that either the market has a lot of confidence in the Fed's ability to bring down inflation, or that the transitory versus persistent debate has not been put to rest. What are your thoughts here? Yes, this this, um, uh, is a total uh, dislocation between what we see around us and what markets expect. It's quite unusual because the the markets have quite accurately anticipated inflation in the last decade. And all of a sudden now you have this huge surge in inflation and the markets are sticking to saying that what's happened in the last decade is going to continue. 
I think this is partly the fact that we have a, a class of investors or group of investors, the majority probably, who um, have really developed a thinking about uh, inflation in a world where there was no inflation. So they're not, uh, the people are not really prepared for an inflationary world. Um, I, I, I actually started my working career in, in the 1970s when there was this huge inflationary surge. And so people at my age actually naturally think inflation is normal, whereas people much younger don't. The inflation in the 1970s was brought to the end not by high interest rates, but by a recession triggered by high interest rates. And that's an important difference to see. It's not the interest rates. It's the actual business conditions which actually cure inflation. And in order to um, uh, bring inflation under control, you need actually quite a slowdown in the global economy. Are we going to get that? We have in place at the moment, very tight labor markets, a lot of money sitting on the side accumulated during the pandemic. And wage inflation is the issue which I think people are not getting to grip with. When there's a shortage of skills around globally, and so businesses are all saying, you know, we can't find the people to do the work. And the only way they're going to get them and keep them is paying them more. And if you are applying for a job, you're in a strong position to demand a, a quite a, 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 a big salary. So this pressure of wages throughout the economy is, I think, the thing that, in fact, is not in the equation with the way the market thinks about it. And that is the big difference um, of where the market thinks and uh, the reality, I think, that we're entering. The other thing which... Um, is important, one shouldn't forget, is that although I say what is in fact the economy, economic activity and, and surpluses and shortages in, in goods and services which drives inflation, there is an underlying reality that um, Milton Friedman said inflation is and always is a monetary phenomenon. Now, that experience has shown us that's not totally correct. But surely after the biggest surge of orgy almost, of money creation, which we've seen in the last two or three years, and in fact for the last 10 years, it's highly probable that the enormous amount of printing of money in recent years is going to come through into um, persistently high inflation for quite some time. That effect, the Fed can sort of run, uh, uh, reduce those Im that impact of the surge of money creation, but it's going to take time to do it. So I think this inflation thing is going to be with us much longer than people expect. Yes, I mean, that is sort of the baffling part. I mean, you've touched on a number of interesting points, but but one is, is the mindset of, of the market and of the average investor in the market today. And it seems as though 3% is as much vision as they have for long-term U.S. yields. And presumably for them, you know, long-term inflation expectations are somehow anchored. And, and I think you've also touched a bit on this, you know, the transitory versus persistent debate. And, and people seem to have carved out issues in the supply chain and pushed them into a transitory box and said, okay, the supply chain just needs to normalize. It's a temporary problem. But the reasons for the dysfunction are, are, are just going to, they're a blip on the horizon and then they're going to disappear. And, you know, I'm hearing you speak to, to far more structural elements here, the wage pressures. I mean, what is your feeling about the Russia-Ukraine war? Is it not touching perhaps on 
you know, ideas that have been coming for years that are perhaps more structural in nature, like deglobalization, protectionism, loss of collective geopolitical security. The problem with wars is they almost always paid for through inflation. That's how, how wars are paid for, which is a worrying um, fact. Again, you must think of this war, how long is it going to last? Um, Putin and, and the people in the sort of Russian military are very committed to the view that Ukraine is not an independent country. It is part of Russia. It should never have been an independent state. And they are correcting an error of history which arose when uh, Ukraine um, became independent from the Soviet Union in, in 1991. It was actually written in the Soviet constitution that any state in the, in the Union was allowed to secede, and they all did. But Putin is trying to, as I'd say, remedy, in his view, this, this um, error. And it was expected, of course, that he'd walk in and it would be all done in, over in a few weeks. It looks as if we've got a war which could go on well into next year. It's going to be a long and bloody conflict. And the, Russia is not going to accept very easily defeat in this war. They will go on and on until they have prevailed. The weapon which they um, will use against Europe is energy supplies. It's highly likely that Russian gas will be cut off to Western Europe. And this leaves Europe facing a winter with uh, major shortages of energy. This will in, in highly likely that will, this will trigger a major recession in Europe. And it's going to be stagflation because there'll be high prices because of all the forces that are going on elsewhere in the world. And, and so there's inflating prices at a time when the economic activity is declining. It's one of the, there's the most toxic economic mix. America's more secure against that because it has energy independence. But Europe is, is going to be a very, very, very messy situation. And it's very difficult to see what they can do. It's a train smash, which is just what we're watching happening. That's interesting. So you've touched on recession. And I think just coming back to what's being priced into the markets and, and the average mind of the investor, I mean, in the US markets, overnight rates are sort of forecast to peak next year, 3.6%. But then suddenly, um, and, and this is a recent sort of phenomenon, the market is looking for the Fed to then start cutting down to 3.2% presumably because they will have tipped the economy into some sort of consumer-led recession. And what I'm hearing from you is that perhaps the U.S. Is, is not actually there and that this is possibly a mispricing and that uh, where a recession may more likely be looming is in Europe as a result of the energy crisis. Yeah, the, the U.S. situation is interesting. One must always be very cautious of saying the market's wrong. It's not because any one of us is smart. It seems collectively sometimes we are smarter than uh, we are as individuals. However, the transitory debate, this sense that everything's going to come back to normal, um, is so entrenched that this is what the market is putting into the prices and this is what people are thinking. The problem is that with a recession, it's not just the uh, United States is, uh, is slowing. Um, they actually were negative growth in the first quarter, actually. Um, the um, China's has quite a lot of growth problems, um, and Europe has the problems which we've just discussed. So, so there is a, a generally a global slowdown happening. But as I said earlier, 
there isn't, I think, enough in place to tip the world into a serious recession. It's not, it's not you know, it, it, things might stop growing or something. But then you, you – and in this environment, you're still going to have in, uh, inflation quite high. So – and people – you know, if someone's um, income's going up by 5% and inflation's 9%, he's going to feel very much worse off. The way high prices tip economies into recession is they f- – they force out spending on certain goods. For instance, if you've got to spend money on on heating, and 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 food, you um, you then um, have less money to spend on other things. So consumption declines. That that's how the inflation affects economic activity. And see, inflation itself, which will will tip the economy into slower growth, but doesn't necessarily tip it into recession, a massive recession. Um, the actual expenditure on goods and services can still continue to grow, even though the activity, the level of activity, is declining. And what really matters is the money bought, you know, the money number, how much people spending, and that continues to go up. So we have low in- unemployment, and we have high inflation, and that has to go a long way before the unemployment rate reaches a level where. The the um, the labour market starts not not pricing in higher wages. Um, Larry Summers said that somewhere around five percent. Well, you have unemployment now three point six. You have to have quite a move in the unemployment rate, and and so will the Fed be able to push the market into unemployment rate? You'd have to have much higher interest rates than is contemplated um, to do that. Volcker had rates when he crushed inflation in 1982. Um, they were up at um, 15, 16%. You need rates at about 6% real. Well, let's say inflation peaks at uh, 9 and a bit percent and comes gra- back for just statistical reasons, so on, say to 6 Well, then we're talking about we must have rates at 8 or 9%. Now, no one's thinking like that. Even if you mention 5%, it's a high number. So... It's unlikely you're going to get interest rates high enough to really tip the economy into a deep recession. That that is why inflation becomes keeps being more persistent. And you have to it's only if you take the decision to eliminate inflation seriously, you then go through the economic pain required to do that. It's very unlikely the political system will support such a move. They say Jerome Powell is having his Volcker moment. It's not clear that he is really we get to, that's still uh, we still to see whether that's true perhaps he's having a Volcker moment of comparison to what the ECB is doing and and I don't know if you want to comment there I mean we've seen euro dollar recently reach parity um, and we know that in the, in the 70s it was as low as sort of 0.7 um, h- how do you feel about that divergence in what's taking place in, in the U.S. versus in Europe in terms of interest rates and the strength of their currencies? The European Central Bank is instinctively dovish. And they have a problem because the South cannot has huge amounts of debt and cannot uh, get people to buy its debt if uh, the ECB step, steps out of the market. So in practice, the ECB is committed, one, to low rates to keep the Italian and also French and uh, Spanish economies, the Greek economy, all on the road, because otherwise um, the, a major hike in rates uh, just makes those countries uh, unfundable. Um, or they can't pay their, 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 their interest bills. 
And the other thing is that they can't sell their bonds. So the ECB is trapped by the structure of the European Union into a fairly dovish monetary policy. They've boldly said that they're going to go from minus 0.5 to naught as their interest rate target in, 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 in by September. That The reason why the euro is so weak is if you, people say, okay, European rates are going to be naught. By that time, US rates will be three, heading for three or three and a half even. And so there's a, the carry trades on. People are moving money out of the euro into, into, uh, in, into the dollar. And that's why the dollar is so strong. The same phenomenon is happening, of course, in Japan, where they're continuing to print money massively to buy up government bonds. And that's smashed the yen, which is um, heading towards 140. So capital is just moving into, the, into, into America. The other interesting thing is that high energy costs, high energy prices, energy is paid in dollars. It's a dollar market. So people who have to pay these high bills have to buy dollars. So the whole market structured to make people want to, at the moment to buy dollars, and that's why the dollar is so strong. And my own view is it's going to that persists for quite a while before this game stops. The, the currency game stops with just dollar being the strong place. And just on that, on the elevated energy prices, you know, how long do you think we're going to see the so-called energy crisis last? And is there a feasible alternative plan for Europe to Russian oil and gas reliance? Give them five years, I'm sure they can do it. Give them one year, they, they can't do it. That's the problem. Um, Europe's been, uh, especially Germany, has based its energy future on closing down nuclear and buying Russian gas. Uh, this was not a smart move. Um, the European energy grid is, in fact, got all sorts of problems. The the um, at the moment, because um, rainfall is low, the canals have there's not enough water on rivers to transport uh, coal and other things like that um, around. So there's problems getting stuff to the to the um, power stations. The um, the nuclear is being sh is shutting down because they, once having started it, it's one of those processes. Once you start, it, it's very difficult to stop. French nuclear, which they depend on is also going through major refurbishment programs and um, again has a shortage of water problem. Lack of rains means Europe's hydropower, which is an important part of Europe's uh, energy mix, is, is lower. So generally, they're just a whole combination. It's a perfect storm. The whole combination of bad situations coming. And there's nothing you can do about it, really. What they're doing is scrambling around the world trying to buy up natural gas, in which they'll build, have to build new terminals to handle these, though, new pipelines. And I say it would take five years to really fix this. So the energy problem, unless you, the Russians, you know, and Europe can patch up and patch up relations and um, return to where they were before, this is going to be a long, long haul, and it's going to be very difficult for Russia, after what it's done, to be readmitted into the global system. And then, Sandy, we've chatted a bit on slowdowns that are potentially taking place around the world, but we haven't spoken too much about China. And there we're seeing actually quite a, an abrupt slowdown. Uh, I was interested in your thoughts there because obviously this is hugely important for SA investors. You know, around 40% of the JSE's top 40 largest companies are exposed to China in some form, whether it be direct or indirect. You know, Richmond sells luxury goods to China. Anglo-American exports commodities like iron ore to China. Obviously, we have NASPERS and its cousin process. Um, heavyweights on the exchange, and then some of the smaller minders have indirect exposure via their commodity exports to China. China 
is um, going through a period of transition. It had an economic model which was based on investment in infrastructure and also a very strong housing market. You know, the housing market counts, various people do various estimates of how much housing counts for the Chinese economy, which range between 20 and 30 percent. It's been uh, of the economic activity in China has been around housing. The housing market um, is perhaps the key element apart from infrastructure uh, in China's great growth in the last decade. And this has its origins partly in the fact that there's an instinctive uh, bias among Chinese investors to invest in property because there isn't a great stock market. The, the interest rates are very low. Where do you go? It's difficult nowadays to invest outside China for Chinese. So housing was the natural place to where people would park their savings. So wealthier people have often had two, three houses, four houses um, as, as an investment portfolio. So there's been this huge demand for housing. This demand has sort of run its path. The prices of housing have become too expensive, so people can't afford to buy them anymore. And the government has been doing a crackdown on housing. Xi, President Xi said that um, housing is for living in, not for, for speculation. The whole edifice of housing prices is sort of wobbled. And if you are an investor and you've bought these things as an investment, uh, and all of a sudden you see the prices all coming down or, or threatening to come down, you stop, you stop buying more. So there's been a huge disruption of the purchase of houses at a time when, when the major developers of houses have rented serious financial problems. Then so, the Chinese government can keep the housing market going to a degree, but actually it's just really like pushing on a string. You, there's limited things they can do. They can't force people to buy houses, and people don't want to do it anymore. They'll stop. And so that's the first thing. The housing market just ceases to be the engine of growth it was. The, um, the ability to invest in infrastructure is, is again reaching the end of the road. What they must do is transition to a more consumption-driven economy. But they've been saying that for years and singularly failed to do so. It's actually an interesting phenomenon in among command economies. Which also, this was also true of Russia and Eastern Europe. Is a command economy is good at building things, but they're quite bad at um, at sort of making uh, buildings up a society built on built up on cons individual consumption. They can build things, they can build a school, but they don't know how to teach in it. Ch China is trying to make a transition to a consumption economy and is not really succeeding in doing so. Russia, the Soviet Union, reached this point in in the 1980s, and it couldn't handle the transition and collapsed. I don't say the Chinese are going to collapse, but what it what it does mean is that the whole locomotive of growth underlying the economy has significantly slowed. This has been aggravated by a decision of um, President Xi to approach the the pandemic to to manage the pandemic through shutdowns rather than through vaccinations and and herd immunity, and. This is clearly a, a, a policy which is having disastrous economic consequences. And uh, China in the first six months of this year is going to hard, hardly grow at all. Um, they are now turning, sort of trying to reverse this policy, pushing money into the economy to get it going again. But whether, whether this will work is not, not, it's not clear that it will. 
as you can just giving people money to spend and let say oh, I'll lend you some money if you don't want to take on more debt you don't it's no use trying to offer people money if they don't want to use it so the 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 ability of the chinese to manage their economy in the way they have um is no longer is no longer there and that is the dilemma they face they have to develop a, a different ways to running their economy and they're not well very well grounded to do so because in fact it probably means you've got to abandon the total controls that the communist party wishes to assert on china and is increasingly asserting on china so you find the ideology is conflicting now with the thinking of the the ideologues is not going to really uh, produce a formula which will make china grow and th- that is the dilemma So China is it's not going to collapse or anything but it's going to slow growth slow down um its end is as as they would say it's not with a bang but a whimper it goes slowly down I think you've raised a number of very fascinating points on China um you know the slowdown in property prices you know has the power to take down not just the consumer who has so much of their household wealth tied up in property i think on average the average person in China owns about two to three homes i mean it's bizarre for us to think about but it also has the the possibility to actually do quite a bit of damage to government fiscal revenues about 25% of the government's revenues come from taxes on selling land because obviously in this communist model only they can own and and thereby sell land rights to property developers and then also on the banking side about half of all bank loans are collateralized by properties so it's this interesting dynamic where almost all parts of the economy are tied into property prices um and and then you mentioned you know perhaps you know they they have dreams of moving to this consumption led model i mean that could be very problematic for a population that is now aging um so so there are varying kind of data points on this but but um as soon as 2030 it's possible that china could have about i think four pensioners for every two taxpayers for every one child it, it will be difficult i think for them to consume in that environment but but by my sort of final question for you on on china is that you know there are still perhaps some strengths in the system um perhaps that they're largely domestically funded uh, how do you think they can sort of drag themselves out of this i i'm less concerned about um china's financial system imploding than other, some other people are and the reason is it's totally an internal economy they have increasingly retreated by behind an exchange control wall which we in south africa are very familiar of such structures um and this keeps capital in china and the the central bank and the banking system is used to manage this and if a bank if one of the major chinese banks ends up with large amounts of bad debts they um they just merely allow those those creditors just to carry on they don't um, this is exactly what happened in japan the bad debts are never written off the system carries on the central bank keeps the bank system going and and, and behind an exchange control wall you can do that So the risk I don't think is the financial crisis. It the risk is in fact that the growth stops. That's that's the that's the risk to the Chinese system. And the demographics as you say are appalling. They 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 are going to be they're going to end up with the worst demographic situation in the world because the one child policy has had disastrous social consequences. 
Sandy, on that slowdown in China's growth and perhaps then their demand for commodities, I mean, I think that's something that we're very interested in here um, because, you know, we've tied ourselves to the notion that SA's growth must be commodities-led. And and we've seen, you know, of late this commodities boom in prices and, you know, SA has been sort of fabled to have very strong growth as a result of that. But I'm not sure that it's come through. And, and there were hopes that the strong export growth of the last year or so would really accelerate our growth rate. And instead, our economy has to some degree reverted to the stagnation of the Zuma years. Why do you think this is? Yes, this is uh, the great disappointment of the last two years because always in the past, South Africa has grown when it's had strong export growth. And I attribute the problem to the total failure of service delivery by the state. That I mean, it's not just Eskom and Transnet, which are the sort of focal points of problems at the moment, but every state institution is failing to deliver what it should be. And the government itself, the government departments are failing. You know, home affairs, does it work? No. Um, the Department of Health, is it working? No. So you have a general failure of service delivery in a state where the state actually plays quite a large role in our economy. And this has become the major obstacle to, to economic growth. And it, the power situation is very important in this. Um, you can't really run an, an, a mining-based economy without reliable electricity supplies. Um, you can't export stuff without Transnet getting stuff through the ports. And the, 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 the you know, Transnet is, is the port situation is is a major crisis for South Africa. And see, these these failures of the state system are in fact becoming a serious obstacle to growth. It's not possible to grow the economy without um, uh, without fixing those things. And it's not clear at the moment there is any great progress being made in in fixing them. In fact, they are deteriorating. I think what I'm hearing from you, Sandy, in short, is that South Africa can't really take advantage of the commodity boom to the extent that we should be doing so. And I mean, we've had a good run on the rand, or at least we had a good on, run on the rand up until about 1450 to the dollar. And a lot of that was our, our current account surplus, um, which grew to kind of a record high of 5% of GDP. But it's slowly being eroded. And I mean, I've been looking lately at sort of the price movements and, and these declines we're seeing in iron ore, rhodium and PGM prices versus still something of an elevated oil price. And that's obviously going to put quite a bit of pressure on the import bill. Um, so, so we've seen the RAND weaken quite substantially in the last few weeks. And we've also seen our bonds quite weak. I mean, this year, the SA 10-year bond um, was trading at around 11.4% yield quite briefly. And the SA 20-year bond at around 12%, very briefly. Um, it, it hardly printed there, luckily, and, and then it sort of came back. Um, but but I, I think this, this raises the important question of why are our bonds and our, our bond yields so weak? And, and can we fund our fiscal deficit? The, the, the weakness is caused by the change in American monetary policy. As, as we discussed with the euro and the yen, the same applies to South Africa with the rand. 
that capital is flowing out of emerging markets, including South Africa. And it must be remembered, South Africa has always been a very attractive destination for emerging market investment because we have a very efficient uh, financial system. So you can park your money into South Africa without um, major complications and you can take it out quite easily. So we are perhaps the favored emerging market as far as we, – we, we're almost a parking station when you don't know what else to do. So there has been a significant capital flow out of South Africa, and that's putting pre- upward pressure on our, on our bonds and, um, and on the RAND. And it's not so much that um, the, the current account is declining, but it still, I think, is in, in, in surplus. And it's not, that's, that's not yet the problem. It's just the capital flow moving out. The intriguing thing is about our ability to to fund our huge fiscal uh, fiscal deficit, which is running at about five percent of GDP, six percent of GDP. When we had the financial crisis two years ago, the fiscal deficit blew out. But it's interesting. Interesting. Then we we then we make working way back. We've now sort of come to accept 5% is quite a normal fiscal deficit. A few years ago, it was actually an appalling number. Now seem, people seem quite happy with that number, which is intriguing. And it shows you how long, how rapidly you get used to what is in fact a, a, a bad situation. But the, the ability to fund our, our situation is linked into our savings pool. And these collective savings of South Africa, investments of the savings industry, is about 13 trillion rand. So actually, if we, you can work it out that uh, we've got enough money to go on for 26 years before the whole thing stops. Seriously, the, 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 um, the savings pool is, in fact, the reason why we have got through all the problems we, we have had in recent years. It kept us, it's kept us on the road when Zuma was around. It's keeping us on the road now. The price of our assets there in South Africa actually comes from p- the willingness of South Africa's savers to redirect um, this money from the savings pool into, into bonds and uh, into, into, into government paper. And there is quite a lot of pessimism among, among the holders of these savers about the situation. And so they're demanding from domestically, people are also looking for quite high returns. So I think that comes together with the the, for, the foreigners taking money out and the locals have the money to take it up, but, um, but they want to get a reasonable return. And within rising inflation and so on, that's not unre- uh, sort of quite a rational strategy for people to take. And, and you've obviously touched on our fiscal deficit and this baking in of 5% of GDP per year going forward. I mean, that's a huge funding requirement. That's about 400 billion rand a year. And I mean, there's a chance that it could even grow beyond that. And and we've seen National Treasury of late sort of doggedly, you know, continuing to issue debt, despite the fact that they have got a 300 billion rand cash reserve buffer right now. And I wonder if perhaps it's because they know that there are a lot of risks to high expenditure going forward. So just in, in that regard, what do you see as the future of ESCOM and Transnet? Could, could they be a further drag on our fiscal expenditure? I, I think both both will be. ESCOM, we can see there's a path now which we're going on, which ultimately could solve the problem. What you have to do is um, have quite an investment in renewables, 
but to do that you have to spend about 200 billion on the on the net on the, the distribution grid and people forget this people keep saying well just build renewable but it's the, it's more complicated than that unless you invest in the grid and in manage uh, and having the system to manage the grid it's it's much very different to manage a grid which has let's say 10 coal-fired power stations or 20 coal-fired power stations in in Mpumalanga providing all the electricity to the rest of the country to one where there's a dispersed and erratic rising of electricity all through the country it it, it requires considerable um, systems complicated systems to manage that so the investment in the grid and the system is necessary to really make the renewable project work. But the funding, the capital to put the renewables in is there. Uh, there's no problem in raising that money. And there's been offers of large amounts of green finance to South Africa, which could be used to um, to invest in the grid. Eskom is actually already using this to invest in, in renewables around its existing power stations, which don't have the distribution network problems because they, it's already established there for the existing ones. So th- that's the route. And then we need some investment in, in say, gas-powered turbo- uh, uh, generators to which can be switched on and off to actually stabilize the grids when the, when the renewable suppliers become uh, erratic. You know, the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. So that path is there. And it's just a matter of managing our way through it. Uh, the danger is that the implosion of the power station system is going faster maybe than um, the new system can be rolled out. That's the biggest danger we have. The other danger the power station has is that there seems to be um, a degree of disruption of the system by various uh, various um, elements in society. Uh, but uh, the plan is there, and if it's pushed through, it can work. Transnet is, again... The, it's the harbors are the, the harbors and the railroad systems require management, but already you've seen where where the mining industry got involved in the management of the and um, the protection of the coal export line, for instance. They've already improved the performance of the system. So, I think the skill set is existing among the customers for the big for the for for actually getting this system going. The problem is the management of Transnet itself has to be seriously jigged up. The skills to do it are there, and the money to do it is there. It's not a problem of funding it, but uh, Transnet's become an, a very doubtful credit for a lot of investors because of its management is so, so, so has not, you know, on top of its job. But the harbors are the greatest risk. We've got to get rapidly those harbors operating better again. Again, it's just a management problem. So the solution is really there. It's just a matter of pushing it through. And Sandy, you touched a bit on sort of the failure of, of service delivery in South Africa. I mean, I'm thinking that could be another sort of unexpected drawdown on the fiscus. It might be via this failing municipal funding model. Uh, what do you think in that regard the political future holds in store for us? I mean, we saw a very interesting set of results in 2021's municipal elections sort of large losses in voter share for the ANC and DA and perhaps static EFF voter growth, uh, but really some level of voter apathy with incredibly low turnout. What, what are your thoughts there? The municipal elections are interesting because that, you know, that you vote for wards. So the, the, it's, it's a much better representation of people's views and local issues are uh, what you're voting about. And I think what the trends that you already saw in the last municipal elections, I think it's going to become more and more prevalent because service delivery has been appalling. 
And then you, 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 you know, if you head into national elections where the ANC might not get a majority, there's quite a significant chance that that's the case. You then get another element of, of sort of instability in our political system. So what you see is that the local politics is going to South African politics generally, and specifically municipal politics, is coming increasingly unstable. The pro financial burden of this you know, is is not um, it's not really the amount giving a matter of giving the municipalities money. It's a matter. The trouble is that um, if you give them money, do they know what to do with it? Because the first thing they do is they hire a consultant, and then they spend, um, you know, a million rand having a conference on what they should do, and so on. And then they sort of stop doing it. There's just a lack of skills in municipalities of such a scale that unless you start reskilling these municipalities, you 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 won't get anywhere. And it's become a rather toxic political. Uh, set up the municipal politics, which is again very difficult to fix. You've got to have actually rebellion on the ground of some move, local movements who just take charge and start fixing things. I think to get that going, and that could happen. That could happen. And finally, Sandy, I, I know I've asked you many questions about inflation and perhaps somewhat gloomy questions around recessions. Um, at this point, what would be the one key takeaway from this conversation that you want long-term investors to walk away with? They used to say that um, in America that f market bears never have mansions in in Fifth Avenue. This is true. You know, actually, success does require a degree of optimism. When I, was, I look at the history of the 1970s, for instance, it was a very difficult time. It actually is quite a hopeful message that came out of that because at the end of it, we had a major recession and inflation was crushed and it set the world on a path of 40 years of, of uh, remarkable growth. And so problems can be solved. That, that's the important thing to recognize. And it just this question who solves the problems can often be a debate. It might not be the present incumbents, but problems can be solved. And so one should not be too pessimistic about things. The future is really very much what we make of it. Thank you so much to Sandy McGregor for joining me and thank you for listening to this episode. We started off talking about global inflation, recessions and the energy crisis and moved into SA's prospects for growth and our debt burden. We welcome your feedback your suggestions and your questions. So please drop us an email on info at alangray.co.za if you would like to share your perspectives. Finally, please remember that Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's, explore the latest investment insights, and to find out more about our product offering, please visit www.alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Talia Patusi from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>